And let me just explain today, we're going to be looking at Revelation 3, just sort of talking about unity in the church. And, you know, we, we, we do this uh, periodically. It's a good time to do it at the beginning of the year. And then next Sunday, we're going to talk about sanctity, uh, unity today, uh, sanctity next Sunday as we think about sanctity of human life. And then the following Sunday, we're going to start a brand new series that I'm very excited about. I've been looking forward, um, eh, looking forward. I've had some fear and trepidation about the prospect of going through an entire series in the book of Hebrews, um, but, but I am excited. I think it's going to be fantastic, but it's just overwhelming to me, so it's taken me a while to get there, but thanks for your patience. But we're finally going to do Hebrews uh, in a couple of weeks, and we'll start with, uh, with that series on how Jesus is greater, and we'll just, you know, that's basically what Hebrews is all about. Uh, but for now, let's look at one of the letters to the seven different churches in Asia Minor that the Spirit of Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. So we're going to look at the letter to the church in Philadelphia. So please stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to start in verse 7 of chapter 3, and we'll go through verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens... And no one will shut, who shuts, and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the, whole, from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall never go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you please bless the reading, the hearing, and the receiving of your word to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Uh, we're going to talk about this open door, you know, that uh, no one can shut, that, that Jesus is, has opened, and we're going to talk about uh, the faithful church, what, what the church looks like. It's, it, it's faithful and it's beautiful. And, uh, and, and so let's start with verse 8, where the Spirit of Christ is telling these uh, persecuted and oppressed believers in the area of Philadelphia and Asia Minor, not Pennsylvania, uh, that I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and not denied my name. Um, let's, let's talk a little bit about power, because that's really what's being focused on here as Jesus uh, shares these initial words with this church. God's acknowledging, you know, <laughs> what 
what all believers know, but we're, we're not always very quick to uh, confess or to admit, and it's that we have, we have little power. We, we like to think of ourselves as more powerful than, than we actually are, because that's how the world operates. You know, you get respect if you're powerful. You get opportunities if you're powerful. People look up to you, and nobody really wants to be known as weak or, you know, unable or, you know, uh, failing in some respect or whatever. We, we want to be viewed as strong. We think of ourselves that way, or at least, you know, we want others to think of us that way, even though we know the truth. And that's that I don't have much power. Um, in fact, the, the, the language here, if you're, if you're reading like the Greek New Testament, it would literally say that we have, uh, so, so our word for dynamite comes from the Greek word for power, dunamis, and, uh, and our word for tiny, like micro, is, is a Greek pr uh, prefix. And so, so both of those words are here to talk about our micro power, our little power. And, and, and really what we don't have power to do is, is to change a lot of things. We, we can't really change our circumstances that much. We don't have a lot of power to influence other people. We can't change them. We don't even really have that much power to change ourselves. That's why we pray for God to do the changing. We need him to change us. We can't, we can't open doors that, that we want to, to have access into different opportunities and people groups and you know, futures that we imagine for ourselves. And we run into you know, to brick walls and closed doors and we gotta come up with other plans, et cetera. That's just the story of our lives. We have little power. And you contrast that with God's power. The Spirit tells the church in Philadelphia that he has opened a door which no one is able to shut. And that's the verb form of the same word, you know, that is describing the little power that the, that the Philadelphians don't have, right? Uh, they have little power. And God has this power uh, to open a door which no one else is powerful enough to shut. Uh, same word, right? Just a different form. And it seems that Jesus is telling these particular saints that he's opened a door for blessing that none of their opponents can bar them access to. Nobody can shut that door because God has opened it. The saints know that they have little power, but Jesus is telling them that the same is true for their oppressors, that their oppressors have little power. They can't shut the door that God has opened. And that must have been incredibly encouraging to these first century believers who have been living under the thumb of oppression as this minority group, you know, with this sort of fringe religion, these Christians, who are they? And, uh, and second class in lots of ways. And here they have the spirit of Jesus telling them, no, those doors that have been shut to you, uh, you know, in, in the world, I'm opening a door uh, for you that no one can shut. Not bad. Well, what door is it? What door is the angel talking about? That's probably, that, that ought to be something we're curious about. Um, and we get an answer actually very in the very next chapter. So just look at chapter four, verse one. And John, the apostle John, who's, who's been given this vision in Revelation, looks and behold a door standing open in heaven. Okay, well, what door is it? The first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a door stood, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So, so here's the door that's open and he sees through the door and what does he see? 
the throne. It's, it's the door into God's throne room. It's the door into not just heaven as a generic concept of the afterlife and you know, maybe you're, you're at the 19th hole or you know, I don't know, people's warped conceptions of what heaven looks like, but it's actually the throne room of God that we have access to that Jesus has opened a door into God's presence that nobody can shut in in your face. Nobody has the power to do anything to bar you access into God's presence. And the Spirit of God is assuring these Philadelphians that their lack of power is not going to hinder them from having access to God. God's using His power to bless the powerless. So I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you felt powerless. I mean, okay, come on, all of us have to some degree. I don't know if you can remember it acutely or not. Maybe maybe it is a very acute memory. And depending on certain demographic characteristics that you share or have in common with others, your experience of feeling powerless before closed doors might be much, much different than others' experience. Your ability to relate to these promises in Revelation 3, you know, it may resonate with your heart a lot more deeply than other people's, you know, experiences who, who really, in the world's eyes, do have a lot of power. They don't have many closed doors. They have access to all kinds of things, right? But depending on, like I said, different demographic things like your age, for instance, you may or may not have open or closed doors. If, you, if you're little and small, you can't ride the roller coaster. Sorry. You know, you guys be this tall. I've never had that problem ever in my life where I haven't been able to be tall enough, even from birth. Anyway, but yeah, if you're little, like, I'm sorry, you know, you, kids, you, you're not able to ride the roller coaster yet. And I know how angry that makes you, right? They made me, give me car seats and booster seats. I can ride around on a car going 85 miles an hour. How come I can't ride the roller coaster? It seems unfair. Anyway. All right. More seriously, though. I'm guessing the women in this room may be able to relate a little bit more to that feeling of powerlessness and the hope of having a door open to you that no one can shut by Jesus that resonates maybe with you more than the men. Why? Because historically, women have had more doors closed to them than men you know, in, in our culture. And that, that goes on, right? Like for, for people who have lower income, and who live in communities where there are lower uh, groups of people who have lower incomes, they don't have open doors to uh, good medical care. They don't have open doors to good food. They don't have open doors to, to good loans. Why? Because they don't build hospitals and banks and grocery stores in poorer communities. Those doors are shut to them because of their income level. And then we don't, I mean, we'll just go ahead and point out the obvious, right? What about your ethnicity? I I just want to ask you to think about Revelation 3 and and go back in time, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, to um, when the civil rights movement was was really, really amping up. And how would uh, our our black brothers and sisters have been reading and, and hearing these words from Revelation 3 about 
the Spirit of Jesus opening a door for them into God's presence that nobody can shut. These who literally have doors that read whites only shut in their faces. And that's their daily experience. How would, how would these words resonate with them as opposed to maybe our experience? Like, oh, that's nice. You know, door open in heaven. Now, I have a door open for me in heaven, into God's throne room, and, and how precious that promise would be. So, you know, different demographic things will mean that make the difference between whether or not you have an open door or a closed door. And then when you start compounding those things, it, it, it kind of can, can get more complicated, right? So what if you're poor and a minority? There was a group called the Markup that did a study um, that really kind of became important uh, during the pandemic when we were all online. And, um, and people who have to do remote um, work and remote school and, you know, uh, church and online, all these things, uh, they, they start realizing, wait, my internet service is awful. <laughs> and they start calling in and they start complaining, maybe the BBB or the FCC or whatever. So, so these things start bubbling up and people start taking notice. And, and this investigative group called the Markup did a, a study called Dollars to Megabits. You may be paying 400 times as much as your neighbor for internet service. So, so what they did was they studied AT&T, uh, Verizon, Earthlink, and CenturyLink. And what they discovered is there is a disproportionately um, skewed offering of services based on whether the, the, the neighborhoods are rich or poor or white or black. And what kind of bandwidth you would get you know, what kind of service, what's your download and upload speed based on those demographic factors. But you'd have to pay the same amount. So they did over 800,000, studied 800, over 800,000 internet offers in 39 cities all across the United States. And here were some of their findings, right? All four of those internet providers routinely offered faster service, like 200 megabits uh, and, and, uh, per second and above, in some neighborhoods for the same price as connections below 25 megabits per second. Some only 5 megabits. That's not even broadband. For the same price. So just to, to bring, it, bring it home here for a second, I uh, went shopping, grocery shopping the other day. Kathy said, well, pick up some eggs. Sure, I'll get eggs. Oh my gosh, 18 eggs? Do you know how much 18 eggs cost? It was over seven bucks. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I mean, I just have no idea. Over $7 for 18 eggs. Now, let me just ask you, if, if I had been come home or, 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 you know, went online complaining, you know, like I'm complaining to you right now about how much I've had to pay for eggs, and then so-and-so says, well, oh my goodness, I can't believe you spent, you spent that much money for only 18 eggs? I spent $7 and I got 100 eggs. I would, I would feel a little bit cheated, wouldn't you? What if you spent $55 for 25 megabits of, of internet service and your neighbor a quarter mile away spent the same amount of money, $55 a month, for like lightning fast internet? Lydia, can I see that slide? This is one of the 39 cities. This is Kansas City, Missouri. And the slide on the left, all the little black dots are low speed offers from you know, these four internet providers. 
Slide, uh, picture on the right, the little black dots are the high-speed offers. Same amount of money. They're all paying the same price for vastly different internet speeds. And then here's the kicker. They're color-coded, right? You can see some blots of color. So on the one on the, on the left has red blots where all of the black dots are concentrated. And on the right, the black dots are concentrated where the green and the blue uh, blots are, are located. Those are two different maps superimposed on one another. The, the one map of the black dots is just you know, the internet speed. The other map with the, the colors and the background are old maps from like 1950 where real estate agents would get together with banks and they would decide where are good loans and you know, uh, being offered, where do the banks offer mortgages and where would they not offer mortgages based on income and ethnicity. I called it redlining. And so the, all the, the red blocks are the, the red line districts. Those are poor and minority groups. And so yeah, redlining was outlawed, right? It's against the law to do that. But the, the, the impact hasn't gone away. And you see it in internet service today. So the conclusion, you know, just one of the, the, the follow-ups in the article said that residents of neighborhoods offered the worst deals aren't just being ripped off. It's not just, oh, I didn't get as many eggs for my seven bucks. I didn't get as much internet for my $55 a month. They're denied the ability to participate in remote learning well-paying remote jobs, and even family connections and recreation, ubiquitous elements of modern life, not to mention live streaming worship, right? Like closed doors based on gender, based on income, based on ethnicity, you know, all of these different factors. What is so shocking about this scene in Revelation is that the persecuted minority of Christians there were given access to what the world had denied them. The world was closing doors in their faces and Jesus gives them access to the greatest of all places, the very throne room of God. And he does it because he's the key. Um, in verse seven, he describes himself as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And the world loves to open doors to the powerful and to the privileged. But when you have no power, Doors are shut. So Jesus came to open the door to God's presence for all people, for all of us, to everyone and anyone so that they can have the privilege of entering and belonging. And it doesn't matter if you're poor or you're rich, you can come in. And it doesn't matter if you're young or you're old, you can come in. And it doesn't matter if you're white or you're black or Hispanic or whatever, you can come in. He doesn't play favorites. In fact, the more people, the better, and the more diversity, the more beautiful. But the real scandal about the door to heaven is that it doesn't matter if you're good or you're bad. You can come in. What? I mean, we're, maybe you grew up believing that the door to heaven is for good people, right? And good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, and that's how it works. That's not how it works. That is not how it works in the Bible. That, that is a warped, twisted view of, of the, the gospel that Jesus gave us. The same gospel where he hung on a cross in between two thieves to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins, specifically for maybe the ways that you and I have used even our little power to shut doors in people's faces. 
And he hung on that cross for our sins in order to forgive us, to remove our guilt and our shame and to give us access into his presence where we don't come in, you know, hanging our head with our hat in our hand. No, we can come in as sons and daughters with our chin up, beholding the face of God and being told, welcome, welcome. I'm glad you're here, right? Now, when Jesus was doing this work, when he died on that cross as that sacrifice for us, he was crucified between two thieves, two bad people, right? And in that moment, the one thief is mocking Jesus and the other thief is going, have you lost your mind? We're here getting getting what we deserve. Jesus has done nothing wrong. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? You're bad. You're not coming in. That's not what he said. So truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. To a criminal who's receiving capital punishment. The door to heaven is open. Anyone can come in. Anyone and everyone can come in. And the reality is that this door is not based on our demographics or you know, our income and all those things. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't base us judged on how the world judges people. He opens the door to all who simply repent of our sins and trust him as our Lord and our Savior. He judges based on our heart. If your heart is open to him, then the door to heaven is open to you. If your heart is closed toward him, the door to heaven, of course, is going to be closed. You don't even want to go in if your heart is closed to him. So the the church are the people, God's group of people who have repented of their sins, said, I don't think the world is working for me. I want how heaven works, and, and I want access to God's throne room. And Jesus has come on in. So in verse 10, we get a picture of what the church looks like. Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Um, so, so we get a picture of the church in Philadelphia as the people who have kept my word about patient endurance. And there's an assumption in every single New Testament book that the church is recognizable, that the church is distinguishable from the world. It doesn't work like the world. It doesn't function like the world. It's, it's got different power dynamics in the world. And the church can be recognized. And one of the things, one of the ways that you recognize the church in Philadelphia is they, they were keeping Jesus' word about patient endurance. So what, is, what does that mean to, to keep the word of Jesus? I think there's a lot of ways we can explain it. I'll, I'll pick one, uh, one way to, to, to look at this. In Galatians 5, Jesus, uh, Paul is echoing Jesus when Jesus was, um, was asked a question about, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the commandments were called God's words, right? It's the, the, the Decalogue or the ten words of God. And Paul's echoing Jesus in Galatians 5, and he says that the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love their neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
So here's what Paul has in mind about keeping God's word and maybe gives us some insight into what Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia. Paul immediately elaborates on the difference between the the way the world works and the way that those who are under the Spirit's um, authority and rule, how they will live. The difference between heaven and earth. And he says, look, I say walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the the desires of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh or the works of the world are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, will not have access, will not have an open door into God's presence because they're not repenting of those things. So it's become, you know, I'm growing increasingly aware, and maybe you're aware of some of these conversations that are going on in some evangelical conservative circles these days where they're kind of going, look, like the world is, is, is ratcheting up and, and it's becoming an increasingly antagonistic culture opposing traditional values. And so what we need to do is maybe, you know, adjust the church's posture and strategy with regard to how we engage culture. And maybe the, 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 the emphasis on, on kindness and, uh, and civility in the past, that, that maybe kind of worked then, but, but we need a better a uh, more aggressive strategy, a, a, a more kind of fight fire with fire uh, mentality these days to fight these culture wars. Have you heard anything like that? Have you gotten a whiff of that? What do you think Paul would say? To, 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 let's just call that a hypothesis. How, how should the church work in the world? What, what, what should our attitude be as, as, as we're engaging with our neighbors? How do we how do we engage with an antagonistic culture? Well, you know, how would Paul respond to that? Well, he goes on to, to say that the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast to the world, the way the Spirit operates, is love, joy, peace. Oh, wait. Patience. Like patient endurance is what uh, the Spirit told the church in Philadelphia. You have kept my word about patient endurance, and that's one of the fruits of the Spirit about kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul would tell us that the way to recognize the church is that the church is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has consistent, demonstrable fruit Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And that fruit doesn't change. The fruit is the ornaments on the church. The fruit decorates the church. The fruit is like our Christmas decorations, but we just took our Christmas decorations down. Is the fruit of the Spirit like that? No, it's not. They're not in season and they're not a season. They're not like strawberries that we're looking forward to, you know, having in a couple of months because they'll be in season. The fruit of the Spirit is always in season. We don't crucify the sinful nature and the worldly uh, attitudes and habits that we used to have and then uncrucify them when, oh, well, you know, things have changed. We need to be a little more aggressive, right? So 
Paul wraps up by saying, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And this is how you'll recognize the church. This is what the church looks like. And in verse 9 of Revelation 3, going back to Revelation 3, um, Jesus uses this kind of strange-sounding expression, the synagogue of Satan. Um, Those who say they are Jews but are not who lie, you know, um, who are Jews. You need to, everybody's a Jew <laughs> in, in this New Testament culture. Like all, all of these letters are being written from Jews to Jews, some who believe in the Messiah, right? Who, who are Jewish Christians. And these are those who lie and do, do not. They have sort of a form of this Christianity perhaps, but, but are lying. And behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet so that they will learn that I have loved you. So basically, the, the, the synagogue of Satan are not devil worshipers with pentagrams and so on. They're, they are any form of spirituality that functions the way the world does instead of the way heaven does. It sort of says, yeah, we're heavenly, but, but they don't look like it. They don't smell like it. They don't act like it. They, they look a lot like the world. And that's, what they're, that's how they're operating. And a day is coming when Jesus is going to come. You know, we just sang about he's going to return. It's going to be like lightning in the sky. And on that day, he will make clear who is in and who is not. And those who are controlled by the world are going to come and they're going to bow before those who have the Spirit. And they're going to acknowledge that Jesus, in fact, does does love you. You're his. In Revelation 1, we read, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He's given us his gospel. He's given us himself. And he loved us so much that he he laid down his life for us. So of course, yes, God so loves the world, but he has a special love for those who love him in return. They enjoy fellowship with him. I mean, that's what that reciprocated love means. God first loved us. We love him in response. And that means we have a relationship. We've been reconciled. We have fellowship with one another. But God loves the world. Does the world return that love? No, it does not. And so they're, they're still alienated. There's not fellowship there. There's not reconciliation there because the world does not repent. Have you repented? Are you in? Not because you're better or smarter or richer or whiter or, or any of these things, are you in because Jesus has loved you and you've said yes to him? And you're loving him in response. That's, that's how we get in. We go through the open door. We, we receive his invitation to come to me and he will forgive our sins and love us. So this is what makes the church beautiful is that that door is open to anyone and everyone who says yes to Jesus, who says yes to his forgiveness of sins, who says yes to his authority in their lives. He says yes to his being seated on the throne and they come around his throne to worship him. And in verse 12, he reads about, you know, hey, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I mean, all that is is just fancy, fun way of saying, you're in, you're in the temple, you're in the place where God is worshiped forever. So much so that you become uh, irremovable you know, as, as permanent a, 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 a fixture as the, the pillars in the temple than themselves. And the pillars are there. Um, yeah, sure, they're, they're supporting the weight, but they're not necessarily uniform. They're not necessarily identical. I mean, who knows? What we do know 
is that in Revelation 7, we're told about this throne room, we're told about the temple and how the Apostle John says, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb and they're crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, uh, you know, a minute ago or so we were asking, hey, what does the church look like? And it's characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. It's different from the world. There's another answer to the question, what does the church look like? Well, it looks like this. With people from every tribe and language and nation standing before him. This is what makes the church more beautiful. So how can we show the world a more united, a more beautiful church? Like, how can, we, how can we be a better reflection of the body of Jesus, the body of Christ? And one of the things just to conclude is that we need to think about how we use our power, which admittedly, there's a lot of us that feel like we don't have much power, right? I, I, I have little power. And see, the Holy Spirit just confirmed, I have little power. I know you have little power. But there's a difference between little power and no power because none of us in this room have no power. We all have at least a little power because we all bear God's powerful image. And in any group where you find yourself, you have an influence. You may feel like it's a small influence, and that's okay, but it is an influence. That's in your peer group, that's on your team. It's in your neighborhood. It's at work. You know, anywhere where, where, where you exist in a community, and maybe it's a good community, maybe it's an adverse community, you still have power. And how are we using our power? Christians are to use our power to serve and to bless, not to flex. That's not how Jesus used his power. Jesus would consistently use his power to care for the powerless and to open doors for them. And every single door he opened was just a picture of that door in heaven that's open to anyone and everyone. So every time you and I are using our power to serve those who struggle and who, you know, to, to be friendly to the friendless and to, to advocate for the voiceless, when we do that, we are showing them a picture of that open door in heaven as we open doors here on earth. In 1974, um, evangelical churches came together, leaders would come together, and they penned what was called the Lucerne Covenant. And in that wonderful document, there's a paragraph on Christian social responsibility. It says, we affirm that God is both the creator and the judge of all men. We therefore should share his concern for justice and reconciliation throughout human society and for the liberation of men and women from every kind of oppression. Not bad. Just another way of saying, are we using our power to open doors into God's presence for the people around us? So <clears throat> there's a pastor down in South Carolina. His name is Derwin Gray. He wrote a book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide. And uh, let me just ask you to listen to a couple of things from him. He says, I found that when uh, white brothers and sisters say that they do not see color, it's because their color has not doesn't, hasn't tended to be an historic disadvantage to them and their ancestors. And so this colorblind ideology also creates a false sense that everything is okay 
And it acts like a spiritual sleeping aid that causes us to ignore certain injustices. And as we think about, well, how can we be a more beautiful church? And how can I be a, a more accurate reflection of, of Jesus who came to open doors for people as a picture of the open door in heaven that he would ultimately give us access to? Then how, what strategies can we adopt and changes can we make to make that happen? And one of the things that Derwin says is to my white brothers and sisters, one of the most precious gifts you can give your siblings of color are these words. I believe you. I'm sorry that happened to you. I am for you, and we are in this together. How's that sit? Let me, uh, let me back up and ask you, when I was showing you that, uh, that picture of the internet service providers and the disparity, right, in, in the service that they're offering for the same price, and that disparity being based on income and ethnicity, and even like the maps mirroring the ancient, awful, prejudiced, racial redlining maps from, you know, a bygone era, but not so bygone. I, I, I'm not saying this is true for anybody here, but, but if there was sort of this thought in you, well, well I, you know, who is this, the markup group? And uh, how, can we, how can we know that the, the, these, these facts are true? And, you know, I'm a little skeptical of this study and its implications. That's valid. That's fine. But, but what I want to ask you is, would you have maybe had the same hesitancy or even skepticism if I had led with a different study from the same organization, the markup, Recently, as recently as November of 2022, where they did an investigation that revealed that tax filing companies, including H&R Block and TaxSlayer and TaxAct, have shared users' financial information with Facebook parent company Meta. You'd be like, what? And, you know, we're retweeting that, reposting that without even hesitating, right? No skepticism, no hesitation. Why is that? Do we, do we recognize that there is a default tendency in us to be biased based on things that might be unfair to us instead of being unfair to others? Look, if, if, if you understand that you have little strength, little power, and if the gospel has come to you with this announcement that Jesus in his grace and his love for you has opened the door to heaven that nobody can shut, that we were powerless to open and that the world is powerless to shut. If that resonates with you, then, then we ought to be the people who are the, the loudest advocates and the boldest uh, to defend those who have doors shut in their faces around us. That shows them Jesus, right? That's, what, that's a beautiful church. And that's a wonderful mission. There was, um, just, just to conclude, there's this uh, funny, I mean, it is funny. Uh, it's sad too, but <laughs> it's kind of typical for the disciples, sad and funny. Like, uh, James and John, with their mom, come up to Jesus and they're like, um, I don't know about these other disciples, but we're your boys. And would you grant for one of us, each of us, to sit on your right and your left hand when you come into glory? Is that... Can we do that? Can we agree to that ahead of time? We, we would like to have those powerful positions, please. How's that for a bold request? And Jesus says to them, well, you know, 
you have no idea the cup that I'm about to drink. He didn't so much correct their question, but correct their expectation. Actually, he did give them what they asked, all of us. We have access to Jesus. We're at his right hand, his left hand. We're we're with him. We're we're beside him. The real question is, how will we use our proximity to, to, to him to bless others? So beware of using Jesus as a means to gain power for yourself. And the point of being at Jesus' side is simply to use whatever power we have to invite others to come and be with him also. Tomorrow is MLK Day, right? Martin Luther King Jr., two months approximately before he was assassinated in Memphis, preached a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And and, and that drum major instinct uh, is his way of describing, it wasn't unique to him, um, but others had talked about it as well. The drum major wants to be out front. Leading the band, leading the charge, powerful, visible. And Martin Luther King Jr., I don't know if he closed with these words, but this was in his sermon. He said, yes, Jesus, I, I want to be on your right side or your left side. I want to use whatever power you give me to bless others. Not for any selfish reason. I want to be on your right side or your best side, not in terms of some political kingdom or ambition, but I just want to be there in love and in justice and in truth and in commitment to others so that we can make of this old world a new one. Amen. Lord, would you give us the grace to, uh, to receive this gift of an open door, to receive the gift of you exercising your power in such a way that we would be blessed and that we would be welcomed. Lord, would you move in us in such a way that we reciprocate? And that our desire would be to reflect your love and your power to this world so that doors can be opened through us, so that your church would be a a more diverse place, Lord, so that your people would be more faithful um, reflections of your grace and your mercy to everyone and anyone. Lord, would you teach us to repent more uh, deeply, more consistently, with greater integrity? And would you grow us in, in beauty and in the fruit of the Spirit so that more and more people can know about your open door to all. In Jesus' name we pray.